This episode of Goodwill Hunters is brought to you by The Intrepid Group, the company making travel a genuine force for good. As you know, in this pod, we talk a lot about how to partner with and have a positive impact on communities all over the world. Having spent the past eight years travelling through some of the most spectacular and challenging countries, I know for sure tourism is one of the greatest forces for good, when done properly. Intrepid is a certified B Corp, specialising in sustainable small group travel, offering over 2,700 trips through four tour-operator brands. I've done an Intrepid tour in Myanmar, and I can tell you they deliver on their commitment to responsible tourism. They are committed to working with local guides, to reducing their environmental footprint and giving back to the people and places they visit. Visit intrepidgroup.travel and change the way you see the world. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Welcome to episode 34 of Goodwill Hunters. Today I'm chatting to Rosemary Addis, who you may know because Rosemary has already been a guest on this show. Rosemary and I had a really great discussion on the state of impact investment and it was really well received by all of you. So we've decided to do a quarterly masterclass on impact investment. So what we're hoping to do in these quarterly episodes is get really concrete about impact investment and discuss what can grow the market what you can do, and where investing for impact is making a difference. Each episode will look at the state of play in the sector and then zero in on a key theme for how we can take impact investment to scale, how any one group can move from interest to action, and we'll share some examples of the way finance is enabling new solutions as well as covering the latest trends and developments. In today's episode, Rosemary and I are going to chat about what can make it easier to participate in impact investment. We'll put a spotlight on the role for banks, given the recent Royal Commission, and we'll talk about solutions for people with disabilities. Rosemary, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure, Rachel. Thank you for having me. So we want to start this episode by discussing uh, some of the trends that we're seeing currently. So one of the most recent trends, and I, I think this was has just been in the past couple of months, is some news regarding uh, the UK disclosure of pension fund investments. So Rosemary, can you share what that's all about and why it's important? Absolutely. And I think it's if we take a step back even, um, what we're seeing is the engagement of broader group of stakeholders. Uh, impact investment has grown quite rapidly and a lot of that activity has been within more select groups or a, a, a very highly networked group of people within within um, the field. And what we're seeing now is the real broadening out and that discussion includes how um, people, wherever they may come from, the um, can make decisions that are more aligned with their values and invest more aligned with their values. And this 
development in the UK is an important part of that. It was an outcome from a task force that was commissioned to look at how they can actually create a culture of impact investing in the UK. And one of the concrete steps that the government there agreed would be really useful is to give people better visibility to what their pension funds are being invested in. We've had some great leadership in Australia along those lines with um, Bronwyn King, for example, who is an oncologist who has led on tobacco-free portfolios really with the very simple message that um, from somebody who spends their life treating cancer, they don't want their money to be going into things that make people sick. And so she's been hugely successful. Um, and just last week, uh, we saw that that there's now over uh, $1.3 trillion has been removed from investment into tobacco. So the intention of this development in the UK is to uh, is to require greater disclosure of where people's pensions are being invested to enable everybody to have a much greater say in where their money is going and to make choices more aligned with their values. I think that's a really significant development. Now, for those of our listeners that aren't sure what a pension fund is, a pension fund is like our Australian equivalent of a super fund, isn't it? That's right. So this is where people's retirement savings or retirement contributions from their workplace are being managed and invested until they're ready to produce an income for people in their retirement. Now, I think in these episodes we will get to talking about where Australia has made progress, but also where other countries seem to have uh, made a lot more progress than us. I'm interested, before we move on, would you say that the UK's leadership in this area is something that Australia could learn from? Certainly the UK has been an early mover and I think what's interesting is the role the government has played there as a driver of uh, of the market and taken some very important catalytic actions. And that started really going back to the early 2000s when, when they first brought together uh, what became known as the Social Investment Task Force. Um, but the focus was really on, on how they could mobilise money into communities to reduce inequality and to uh, create wealth beyond welfare. And I think that the work that's come from that has seen significant infrastructure, including big society capital and other developments in the UK from which the rest of the world um, is definitely learning and which have, have informed the work then of the G8 task force, which was launched by David Cameron when he was Prime Minister of the UK um, and also uh, President of the G8 in 2013. And that's led now to a movement that is um, that is translating uh, a lot of the lessons from the UK across other countries and encouragingly now creating a forum where where um, a, a large number of countries can learn from from one another. So definitely we can learn from the UK. We can also learn from, uh, from other countries as well. Mm. Now, it seems that every discussion on impact investment goes hand in hand with a discussion on impact measurement. So this is another key trend that we're seeing at the moment is a, a real push towards understanding the impact in impact investments and um, we're seeing leadership from the IFC with their principles and also from uh, the UN with the UN SDG impact measurement. So can you tell us about that trend? This is really important and, and goes to um, the credibility of the of the way forward and 
how people can actually know whether things being done in the name of impact are indeed making a difference for people and the planet. It also is aligned to the developments we were talking about a minute ago because it's part of making it easier to participate. If we have credible, reliable information about impact goals and performance, that informs decision-making. If we can actually compare the impact of one investment with another uh, or see where money is going, then we can make more informed decisions. Uh, people can decide what product they want to buy based on whether they uh, think it, it is more impactful or less harmful to the environment and society. Um, they can make decisions about which bank to put their money with or which pension fund they'd like their savings to be with if they can see where decisions are being made that are more aligned with their values. It's also really important for us to know where we're making progress towards the goals that have been set universally, including the Sustainable Development Goals, which are the, the best and most robust blueprint we have about the key areas that need uh, attention for us to be able to progress across the world um, and to address everything from poverty to ensuring that people can be healthy and, and communities uh, uh, vibrant and have well-being and um, and that we're addressing the issues with energy and climate. So those 17 goals, for people who aren't familiar with them, are the high-level index of the key areas where we need to be putting our focus and attention to improve outcomes for people and, for the, uh, and to conserve the planet. Um, and what we've seen in the last um, couple of years is a much more concerted focus on how do we take the impact measurement that has been happening either sporadically or in individual organisations um, with some different methods that have been developing um, for different purposes and actually drive more convergence and more consistent ways of thinking about how we measure and manage for impact and in the process create the credibility and reliability that people can um, can actually start to make decisions on a on a basis where they've got choice. Um, that process uh, has had contributions from a number of different players, and the um, entry of the IFC, which for people who don't know is the International Finance Corporation, uh, which is a part of the World Bank that does a lot of development investment. They've introduced principles now and they're inviting investors to sign up to these principles that um, speak to the, the commitment that they make to actually embedding impact in their strategies, the management through the investment process of the impact elements and the measurement and transparency about what they're doing. Um, so this is a really important development. There's already 60 signatories uh, ranging from specialist impact investors like Leapfrog through to uh, the UBS and other mainstream investment banks who are signing on to these principles. And this is one piece in what is a much larger effort involving a number of significant institutions, including the OECD and the United Nations, as well as specialists like the Global Impact Investing Network, to put in place the building blocks for a really credible system. Uh, so if you think about it similar to our financial accounting systems, we have accounting principles and we have standard ways of disclosure and reporting. And to make sure that we've got the right data 
to inform those, we have double entry bookkeeping and different ways of, of maintaining accounts. And so this is taking that same approach to impact so that we can start to build credible information about uh, the impact that's being achieved and also to bring transparency and accountability to the um, to the system so that where people say we're doing something that's having an impact, that there's actually a way to um, to be able to see what the objectives and the performance are and to enable people to make decisions about that. The other really important thing about this is greater accountability and transparency about impact objectives and performance will respond to the demand from the community but will also drive demand. The more that people can start to see the impact that things are having, the more they'll start to ask for the kind of impact they think is important and that matters to them. And so this information and data um, is really is really important to arming people with the information they need to have confidence in the system and to make good decisions about the impact they want to see. Yeah, and I think your reference to accounting standards is a, is a really important one because when we think of accounting standards, we think of quite a, at least nationally, if not internationally, standardised system, which makes comparison relatively easy. But I think the challenge that we've seen with impact measurement is a lot of different systems and a lot of different metrics for measuring impact, which does make comparison between different investments quite difficult. So things like the IFC principles, as well as the work that groups like Big Society Capital and um, Social Value International have done to create almost outcomes universes um, to standardise outcome measurement, I think is a, is a step in the right direction. The, these are really important early steps. And I think the learning that's uh, come from both the financial system and from other areas like microfinance is accelerating the process uh, to take us towards more comparable measurement and standards. We've still got a way to go yet. Um, but I'm always heartened when I read the history books that tell us that back in um, the time when they started preparing financial accounts, that there were lots of people who thought it wasn't possible to actually come to a to um, a, an agreement about how to approach your accounting on a way that uh, that people could actually make relative decisions about the performance of different kinds of organisations or different kinds of investments. Um, we've come a long way since then. Um, and while you can still have robust debates about the different methodologies, I think people accept that there's enough information for them to make informed decisions. And we're now starting on that journey on the impact side as well, um, which is a really important step. Now, the last trend I want to discuss before we move on is the importance of asking good questions. And you refer to on-ramps, Rosemary. So can you tell us a bit about that? So what I mean by on-ramps is where do you get started if you're um, somebody who wants to explore more opportunities to make choices that are aligned with your values? Where do you start with that? And I think key places to start are educating yourself but also asking questions. If we want to build demand and show people that there is an appetite for impact, then demonstrating that by asking questions of your financial advisor, of your banks, of your super fund, as a stakeholder, that's a really legitimate thing to do and it helps to give them confidence to, um, to take action because that's what their customers want. 
And we've seen that be a big factor in the US, for example, where a number of the advisors and the um, and the firms who manage the money, particularly for family offices and um, high net worth individuals in the first instance, are really seeing that their customers want options aligned with impact and they're responding to that demand. Uh, similarly, we're seeing with the inheritance of wealth by younger people and by uh, women um, in numbers that we haven't seen previously, that that is really shaking up the system and where people are asking different questions, um, that is requiring the service providers, the um, investment funds, the advisors to respond in a different way. So, um, for example, we've seen a significant shifting of where money is being managed as women are inheriting more money in the US and asking different questions of their advisors, including about the impact that that money is having. Um, these are strong market signals and I think really embracing the power that every individual has to ask questions about where their money is going and say, this matters to me, and for organisations to engage with their stakeholders and supply chains and say, impact's now on the agenda, this matters, is a very powerful way to start to shift the the bigger system because it helps to to create the, the demand and, um, and to provoke action. Yeah, I agree. That's such an important such an important topic um giving people an idea of where to start with this is is really critical and and um i'm glad that we can discuss that are there any uh key resources that people wanting to learn more about these trends could look to and if so we'll include them in the show notes absolutely so i would encourage listeners to look at the impact management project which is the driving force behind a lot of the developments in impact measurement and management and brings together a whole range of resources. Um, the blueprint from the Australian Advisory Board that was released late last year called Scaling Impact, which we can provide you with the, the links to, Scaling Impact sets out the role for different actors, but it also has a section that explores some of these big themes, including how we make it easier for people to participate and uh, including easier for people to invest aligned with their values. Um, so they're probably the key things and we can provide some other references for your site. Now, this next part of our discussion looks at who can do what and uh, what the role of the individual is. So really uh, putting the spotlight on how different stakeholders can get involved in impact investment. So I think the most logical place to start in the wake of the Royal Commission that has really shaken up the banking sector in Australia like like nothing ever has before. Uh, let's talk about the role of banks. So what's the role of banks um, with regard to impact investment moving forward? I think the first thing to remember is that uh, the, picking up where we left off in terms of the of the trends, it's up to everyone who wants to see impact on the agenda to take action. And so there's something that everyone can do. Um, banks are a really important uh, piece in the system because they touch nearly every person. You know, it's especially in a country like Australia, although not everywhere, but in a country like Australia, nearly every person has a bank account or some dealings with a bank. Nearly every organisation has bank accounts and loans and um, and dealings with with banks. 
and so they sit in a in a very important and interesting position in the system where they touch so many of the people and organisations and transactions that happen in our society. And they can enable and provide finance for organisations to help them expand their impact. They can also act as a really important intermediary aggregating um, up opportunities that enable different kinds of groups to participate. So what I mean by that is it may be, um, it may be difficult for individuals to go out and seek investments that contribute to the sustainable development goals or have greater impact. But if their bank offers them a product they can invest in or a savings account where the investment is going to go into that, then, um, then that enables more people to participate. Um, banks obviously provide finance to a whole range of organisations and they're critical partners for um, the recipients of, of impact capital. And from the bank's perspective, there's really powerful uh, reasons why they should look at, at impact. Um, it, you know, it opens opportunities for them to be able to link their core business with stakeholder values and to create new opportunities for future growth. Um, it can enhance their trust and reputation with stakeholders and their social licence to operate, obviously a very important theme coming out of the Royal Commission. It can help them to attract customers and employees and to retain them. And from a business perspective, it's also a real lever that can open up growth strategies for new products and services, either to their existing customers or by extending into into new areas. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I think what's interesting there is, as you mentioned, we live in a country whereby almost everyone has a bank account, uh, even down to school students with sort of the the rise of school-based banking programs in, in the rec recent years. So everyone has a bank account. And then on top of that, many Australians who choose to invest in the share market would also have shares in the major banks. So there's a couple of different avenues in which to in which to engage. So I think I think there's sort of two streams of discussion there. There's what the banks themselves can do, and then what we as a consumer of banking services can do. Uh, so to build on the former point there, who are some role models that we're seeing uh, for banks? Like where could banks look to to see what um, best standard is on how they operate? The point that you raise is a really important one about the banks in the Australian context because we have uh, within our system some very big banks and we, then we have some smaller banks. The very big banks actually have... Uh, a, a reach in terms of the operations from their consumer banking to their business banking, wealth advisory, um, trustee services, a whole range of things that in a way mirror the broader ecosystem. So they can play in lots of different, lots of different ways. Um, and we have mapped out some of the some of the places where they can start in developing their their strategies and how they can then look to grow their impact and there are some fantastic role models around um, so at the larger end we've got international role models like BNP Paribas who've taken a bank-wide strategic approach to embedding impact um, and that includes a range of 
funds that are certified as making a contribution to sustainable development um, and some of which have different themes, for example, targeting environmental protection or social wellbeing that mean that people can invest in those funds if they want to be able to contribute to seeing progress in those areas. They've also created savings accounts that uh, enable uh, both institutional investors and their uh, their retail customer base to be putting their money to work towards the sustainable development goals. Interestingly, they're also crafting offerings where um, they are incentivising their customers to become more sustainable by agreeing to lower the price of finance to them when they can validate that they're that they're um, making progress in their sustainability as an organisation. So I think these are some really important developments. We're also seeing at the um, at the smaller end of the banking spectrum, banks that are really working with what gets termed the real economy, but the small and medium enterprises that are working in communities, banking those enterprises on a values base with real transparency where they're committed to seeing progress in the communities and to understanding their customers in a very uh, relational and connected sense to give appropriate finance for them to be able to to grow and to build um, their own sustainability and impact in their communities. Bank Australia is an example of that in the Australian context, and they're the only Australian bank currently a member of what's known as the Global Alliance for Banking on Values, which is an international organisation that was um, led by Triodos, um, which is one of the uh, established sustainable banks out of the Netherlands, um, there are members now of the Global Alliance across many countries and they commit to operating on a, on a basis of sustainability and transparency and banking the real economy. Um, the uh, investment banks have also been stepping in to this and we've seen groups like JP Morgan take some catalytic action by uh, investing in research, which has led now to the Global Impact Investing Network surveys and more recently they've been working with groups like the Gates Foundation on a global health investment fund um, or with NatureVest which is a partnership with the Nature Conservancy to um, provide an impact investment platform. Um, so they've been really providing the gateways for different types of, um, of investments into key areas like health and the environment. Um, other groups like Barclays have offered um, multi-impact growth funds. So as a bank developing a product that really is opening up the, the market for their customers who are seeking to invest for, uh, for impact and for a vehicle that um, is offered by a mainstream bank but enabling their customer base to um, be able to invest directly for, for impact. Wow. Okay. So for us as consumers of banking services, um, one of the first things that's bringing to mind for me is why my bank is not a member of the Global Alliance for Banking on Values. Uh, so I think that's certainly something that as a consumer uh, I could push uh, and, and uh, encourage, otherwise encourage um, more banks to join. Um, so what else as a consumer can we do in this space? One of the questions we sometimes ask people when they're looking to get involved in impact investing um, is where do they keep their cash? Not all investment has to be uh, not all investment has to be 
in sophisticated, structured investment products. Some of it is about where do you put your money and, and who are you allowing to use that? So when we put our money in a bank account, we're allowing the bank the use of that that money. Um, and so asking questions of the bank about their policies, particularly as you get through the spectrum to either um, to larger investors, um, you know, philanthropic trusts and others to be asking banks um, about their approach to impact and about the options they might be prepared to offer. And as individual consumers, we can still ask those questions, including about brokers or for those who are in the fortunate position to have private bankers to be asking about the bank's position on key issues or about their approach to impact and the options that they offer. And as individuals, I think we can bring our collective advo- uh, voice to this, um, including working through um, groups like consumer banking and saying we want these choices and making our voice heard. And as you said, a lot of uh, individuals are also shareholders in the banks, sometimes through this through their pension funds, sometimes individually, um, and that's another avenue to uh, to have your voice heard. Yeah, and, and I often like reflecting on the trend that we saw in AGM season last year, um, annual general meetings, whereby the number of hostile AGMs was higher than ever, which essentially meant that a growing number of shareholders, including shareholders in the big four banks, um, were holding the banks to account in those general meetings and and asking about things like, you know, climate disclosure and impact investment. And and I think it really exemplified the powerful position that shareholders are in, um, probably more so than ever before. I think that's right, Rachel. And I think, you know, individuals might say, well, I'm only one voice. But if there are a number of voices that are raising these concerns or um, identifying the groups like the Australian Shareholders Association or others, um, where you might be able to bring your voice together with others who care about the same issues is an important way to think about uh, having a say. The other one is about the choices that you make as a consumer. Um, and, you know, we've certainly seen examples internationally um, where customers have chosen to move their accounts um, Triadis, for example, had a record number of new account openings in during the financial crisis where uh, other banks were announcing record bonuses for their executives and people actually chose to move their money to a bank more aligned with their values. Yeah. Now, we'll include some resources uh, relating to those topics in the show notes. Uh, where we want to go to next is where is investment driving impact. So sharing some inspiring examples of how impact investment is really catalyzing change in the sector. Um, so to begin, are there some examples that come to mind that are that are really powerful for you? So we're lucky that we've got an increasing array of examples um, of where um, investment is making a difference. And, and um, there are uh, increasing number of people focusing on how do we, um, yes, direct more investment to things with impact, but also look at where there are issues for which we need new models, new solutions. Um, so there's inspiring examples out of Canada on um, housing for the Indigenous communities. They're um, striking a new deal between philanthropy and some of the banks to get a much more sustainable model that works with their local land management practices um, and in the process is creating jobs and housing for 
people in the communities. The Rockefeller Foundation has put a lot of work into what's called their Zero Gap initiative, where they're um, looking at technology solutions um, that actually bridge the space between where the need is and uh, where the market is at, at the moment. Um, and we've seen some very creative um, approaches such as the financing that uh, re, uh, refinance some of the national debt in the Seychelles in the process um, enabled a marine conservancy um, to be established that will re-establish fisheries and the health of the natural marine environment. So there's a broad range of areas um, where we can see that impact investing is making a difference for people and for the planet. And um, we can point your listeners to um, a, a number of, of examples. Uh, the blueprint that I mentioned um, has over 40 case studies of different examples from around the world. Fantastic. And I think an area where we're seeing the power of impact investment is around the NDIS. So uh, that's the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Um, I think over the last 12 months, we've really begun to see the direction that the NDIS can go in and the impact that it can have. Um, and we've especially seen both sides of politics making varying commitments on how the transition into the NDIS um, will be made a success. So what sort of trends are you seeing around impact investment for the NDIS? So this is a hugely important change in our society here in Australia and it, the transformation is not just about the money but about moving to a, a, an approach that's really centred on the people with disabilities and their families and what they need to um, be happy and, and living their lives to the fullest. Um, just to ground that discussion, uh, it's probably worth uh, setting the scene that there is lots of room for improvement. And this is not an issue that affects just a few people. One in five people or about 4.2 million Australians have a disability of some sort. 45% um, of people with a disability in Australia live near or below the poverty line. Um, and sadly for a country of our wealth, Australia's the lowest ranked OECD country for relative income of people with a disability. And the estimates are that the needs, the, the customer and consumer needs um, of approximately one in three Australians with a disability are not being met. Um, so there is lots of room for um, for improvement and the um, the NDIS, which uh, people may be aware is a national ins insurance scheme, is one of the most significant social services and policy changes in Australia and promises to deliver a system that puts people with disabilities at the centre in uh, um, situations where they have much more genuine choice and control and certainty of access to the support that they need to be able to participate fully in society. Um, and it's a process in transition at the moment. And so there are lots of areas where that, um, that change is still coming to fruition. And our focus is, is how impact investing can help to accelerate that transition and the growth in innovation um, and drive a focus on, on outcomes as well as provide some value to investors. So when we think about this, 
we think about it from the perspective of what are some of the the barriers that um, that are there? How could they be removed? And how can we think about the the future and the outcomes that people need and want, and what we could invest in today that can contribute to actually taking us towards that future? And in the area of disability, we think there's a number of, of things that are ripe for investment today to help to accelerate the transformation and the promise of the NDIS. Um, that includes investing in um, resilient organisations providing services and employment opportunities. Let's help those organisations transition by investing in their future. Um, financial innovation uh, in assistive technologies. Um, there's lots of scope for technology to be a real driver of improvement in the experience and lives of people with disabilities. Um, looking at blended finance models, how do we bring together the some of the funding that government has with private finance to ensure that services are, are reaching um, people, even those who through their needs or their physical location or geography are the hardest to reach? Um, how do we strengthen the purchasing power for people with disabilities? And also uh, financing, housing, um, which is an area of, uh, of both need and, and opportunity and one that has some real scale for um, potential for investment. Um, so if you like, Rachel, I can give you some examples of, of some great stuff that's happening in Australia already um, and some things that we think the Australian community could take inspiration from. That would be great. So we've seen some groups in, in Australia, um, including Summer Housing, which um, has a real focus on the young people who are living with disabilities and currently only able to have their needs met within nursing homes. Um, Summer Housing is very keen to see those young people out in the community able to um, enjoy life with much more freedom. And they um, have been working to commission at least 300 dwellings that will interact with the financial and service streams from the NDIS uh, for people with disabilities and they're partnering with a range of providers to uh, to achieve that. And this is uh, the type of model that is well suited to um, really establishing intermediaries in the market uh, that uh, can support disability housing and um, and create pathways for uh, for investment, and that kind of kind of initiative is also really important to improving lives for um, for people. And um, we really think the stories about the difference it's made to people with disabilities and their families to have that option to live in the community are uh, um, are really important. Um, we're also seeing innovative service providers come into the market. Uh, Groups like Higher Up, which is a platform connecting people with disabilities and, and care um, and their families with carers and enabling them to really drive that uh, that relationship through an online platform. Um, and we've seen Higher Up attract investment in the Australian community. They've done a couple of rounds of investment now that's enabling them to grow and to be able to service more people. They've provided more than 900,000 hours of, of support. They've saved millions of dollars for the users by um, enabling them to deal um, to deal directly. Um, and in addition to improving that relationship uh, for people with 
the with their carers, um, they uh, have been able to to raise money from investors and and grow. Um, but we're also seeing some some great opportunities beyond Australia that we think we could learn from here. Um, Golden Lane Housing in the UK, which is providing housing for people with intellectual disabilities, reducing the costs to um, to government but improving the outcomes for those people and for their families as, as well. And they have a lovely um, uh, component to their work called the What Matters to Me Index that actually surveys their clients about what improvements they've experienced through being able to, um, to live in that housing and have the services that are provided around that. Um, the Dis- Disability Opportunity Fund in the, in the US, which is financing creative and scalable uh, solutions um, in community, providing on loan um, finance, providing loan financing specifically for affordable housing and other services for people with with disabilities. Um, and another one I really like because it's about giving consumers choice is the Motability Scheme in the UK, which um, is enabling people with a disability to um, to access. Uh, vehicles that are suitable for them um, in a way that's much more efficient than the current systems that really see families working with um, with car dealerships uh, and uh, agencies one by one. This really aggregates that demand um, and has created a whole industry that's creating jobs as well as being much more efficient and effective and providing consumers with real choice about how they want to get around. They're fantastic examples and we'll include links to those in our show notes. Now, Rosemary, you and I are just about out of time. Um, I think we could talk about this for hours, um, but I just want to finish with a super quick market roundup. So could you just share with us one or two things happening in the market at the moment that are interesting that our listeners could go and check out? Absolutely. So um, one important development has been that the Global Impact Investment Network, or the GIN, um, has for the first time moved from a survey model to doing a market sizing. That market sizing has revealed that there's more money out there already being deployed for impact than uh, than we previously thought. Uh, their estimate of the market size globally is around $502 billion US um, and also points to a, a lot of potential. Um, another terrific recent development is the New Zealand budget. For those who haven't seen, New Zealand has based its budget around wellbeing principles. This is a really important and innovative um, shift in the focus of what government budgets are about, and I'd invite people to take a look at that. And here in Australia, in the budget pre-election, we had a commitment to whole-of-government action at the Commonwealth level for the first time with the announcement of a social investment task force out of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Uh, we've talked about the the IFC principles, really encourage your listeners to go take a look um, and they'll see that they're really quite uh, quite straightforward and, a, and um, a terrific step in encouraging more uh, investors to sign on for impact. Um, we've also seen the UK um, announce an Impact Investing Institute. This is an amalgamation of the latest government task force there that was created around driving a culture of impact investment and their national advisory board um, who are now coming together in an institute with a big focus on how they can open up opportunities for more people in the community to in to be part of of impact investing um, 
And the United Nations has launched its uh, SDG impact initiative. So this is an initiative for how they can bring the experience and wealth of data from across the United Nations Development Network to help people understand the landscape for impact investment and for making a contribution to the sustainable development goals, as well as set the pace for what it need, means to be doing uh, SDG-enabling investment. Um, and last but not least, we've seen LeapFrog, one of the first signatories indeed to the IFC principles and an Australian-based fund manager, launch a, a new billion-dollar fund, which is the largest private equity fund by a dedicated impact fund manager and has attracted investment from institutions, including the IFC, but also Australian pension funds, Hester and, and Christian Super. This is important because it shows that impact investments can be structured in a way to be institutional grade. And it puts a spotlight on the terrific opportunities that we have to be investing from Australia to make a real difference in communities throughout the region. Yeah, I think that leapfrog example is particularly exciting. Rosemary, thank you so much. Um, as always, you are a wealth of knowledge. I've learned so much in this episode and I'm really looking forward to doing this every three months. Um, so thank you for your time and we look forward to chatting to you again. Thanks, Rachel. It's a pleasure.